for cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. Kwabana Austin Menz grew up in the central region of Ghana. My parents and my grandparents were cocoa farmers. I grew up in a cocoa growing community and I was educated with cocoa money. Sean Askinosi lives half a world away in southern Missouri, but he also comes from a farming family. My grandparents, they had a small farm that had some cows and a garden. And so this idea of direct trade or working with farmers and helping them export beans and the genesis of all of that is my grandparents. Kwabana and Sean don't work together. And in fact, they've never met. But they're both important voices in the conversation around ethical chocolate. Because Melissa and I care very deeply about you, Gravy listener, we've gone to the store and we have come back with roughly mm, 10 pounds of chocolate. All of which we're probably going to eat while we're sitting here. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> it is not hard to find, even in big box stores, beautifully packaged, brand marked chocolates. And every bar tells a similar story. Fair trade, equal exchange, USDA organic, non-GMO verified, percentage of net profits to save our fill-in-the-blank, rainforest, wildlife, you name it. And on the back, in small print, often made in Europe, or occasionally in the U.S., and all distributed from places like Indianapolis, Indiana, or East Hanover, New Jersey, or even Springfield, Missouri. And that got us to wondering, how does this bean-to-bar pipeline work? Who profits and who loses? I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lasseter. Welcome to Gravy. 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 A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. Listen as Sarah Holtz unwraps the story of Southern chocolate. You like what I did there? I do. I do like what you did there. (laughs) Very clever, Melissa. A decade ago, Kwabana Asan Men's founded MFED Farms to serve small cocoa farmers in central Ghana, especially those who are aging or have physical disabilities. Though the region has rich, fertile land, Kwabana saw that many farmers were struggling to manage their operations. Their children were leaving the farms, moving to urban areas with more job opportunities. MFED has helped dozens of farmers address those difficulties, resulting in higher yields and better earnings. So I thought of what else could I do to help them generate more income from what is available to them instead of them running to the cities and other sort of things. And the only thing I realized to do efficient at that time was to help them improve their farms. Cocoa is highly profitable in Ghana. MFED Farms subscribes to a profit-sharing arrangement that's traditional to the region. The farming system in Ghana, we call it Ebunu and Ebusa. Ebusa simple means division three, means the yield that has come out from the farm is going to be divided into three equal parts. With Abu Sa, the three equal parts are split between the landowner farmer, the tenant farmer, and the management, which is Kwabana's organization. The landowner typically has more power in this arrangement, but because many of Kwabana's clients are elderly or widowed, they're vulnerable to exploitation. So his organization ensures that profit sharing remains fair. 
Most of Ghana's cocoa harvest is exported to places like the United States, where it'll be processed into chocolate. Sean Askinosi founded a chocolate company near his grandparents' Missouri farm in 2007. He had been working as a defense lawyer, but decided to resign after a particularly demoralizing murder trial that left him with severe anxiety. From there, he turned to cooking, first grilling for friends, then baking. Then he lit on the idea of making chocolate. Askinosi chocolate was one of the vanguards of the craft chocolate movement. It's also called bean-to-bar chocolate, linking it to slow food-related movements like farm-to-table. Sean's daughter Lauren started working part-time for the company while in college, and today she's a partner in the business. In brief, farmers harvest, ferment, and dry cacao beans, beginning their transition into cocoa. A bean-to-bar chocolate company generally imports the cocoa beans and roasts them, then mixes them with sugar and cocoa butter to form finished bars. This process is in contrast to industrial chocolate manufacturers, who add more sugar, salt, oils, and stabilizers like soy lecithin. I learned how to roast cocoa beans and temper and mold chocolate, even though I don't you know, really do those activities anymore. So when I graduated at 20, I jumped full-time into a version of the role that I'm in right now, which at this point is cooperating a business with my dad and uh, our amazing team of about 20 people. Askinosi Chocolate is based in Springfield, Missouri, but I caught up with Lauren remotely from her home in Austin, Texas. Before the pandemic, Sean made annual trips to cocoa farms in Ecuador, Tanzania, and the Philippines. Lauren joined him periodically. Through these visits, the Askinosis have cultivated close personal relationships with their farmer partners. These days, they exchange messages in lieu of in-person visits, just to see how everyone's holding up. Lauren met several of these farmers when she was just starting out in the business. I asked her about her very first origin trip to Ecuador. It was a lot of me listening and learning. That's when I learned how to first perform a cut test, check the moisture content of the beans. Um, Are these the right? Have they been fermented properly and dried properly? What is the color and the shape and the size like? Going to look at the farm itself and check the trees. Are they healthy? Central to the Askinosis business model, Lauren also learned how the company profit shares with their farmer partners. On top of the premium the Askinosis pay for cocoa beans, they pay farmers up to 10% of the net income for each season. The conversation around profit sharing was one moment that stood out to Lauren during that first farm visit. Discussing the export details of the cocoa, and then of course, discussing the profit share and, and handing over the cash Um, from the sales of the previous year's crop of beans. That was my first time getting to witness that live and in person and take it all in. And I remember feeling at that time, like, I think, you know, this is something really special. Many of us take business practices like the Askinosis for granted. Terms like corporate sustainability and ethical sourcing are gradually entering the mainstream, but they remain a little vague. Because of its direct trade and profit-sharing practices, Askinosi chocolate ends up paying about 57% more than market price for beans. That's part of the reason you might see a Hershey bar at the grocery store for about $2, while an Askinosi bar retails for $10. Lauren and Sean say that the largest chocolate companies in the world, what they call big chocolate, conceive of cocoa farmers not as partners, but as links in the supply chain. More on that in a bit. For some background on small chocolate, I called up Megan Giller. 
She's a food writer and the author of Bean to Bar Chocolate, America's Craft Chocolate Revolution. She told me that early on, craft chocolate makers took a cue from coffee. The chocolate world has copied the coffee world. <laughs> so the, the specialty coffee world is a lot more advanced in a lot of ways. Um, and so, I mean, even the terms direct trade and transparent trade are from the coffee world. The distinction between fair trade and direct trade is important. Fair trade is a third-party certification, kind of like organic. It's a label that costs producers significant capital to acquire. Direct trade isn't a formal designation, but rather a set of values. With direct trade, farmers receive above-market premiums and profit shares. They often build close relationships with the makers who buy their cocoa beans. And, fundamental to direct trade, there's no slave labor in the supply chain. With big chocolate, forced child labor is widespread and well-documented. As a former attorney, Sean Askinosi is in a unique position to comment on this issue. He's meticulous about sourcing his cocoa beans from slave-free farms. When two cases against food conglomerates Nestle and Cargill reached the U.S. Supreme Court in 2020, he got to work on an amicus brief. The most shocking thing, I think, for some people to realize is that this litigation was brought by former enslaved children over 15 years ago in the federal district courts in California. And they were blocked by Nestle and other big chocolate companies at the outset so that they were never able to have their day in court. Fifteen years later, some of those former cocoa workers finally saw their case all the way through to the highest court. Just a chance to put on evidence that, yes, this is in fact what happened, and these companies should be stopped, and they should pay damages for the harm that they caused to these children that were enslaved and used by these companies. During the Supreme Court arguments, the representatives from Nestle and Cargill skirted the child labor abuses in their supply chain in countries like Burkina Faso and the Ivory Coast, focusing instead on the limits of corporate liability. They've shielded themselves with similar bluster before. For example, all of the big chocolate companies signed an agreement in 2001, stating that they'd hold themselves accountable for eradicating forced child labor. But they've consistently pushed back the deadline on the agreement. Now that deadline is 2025. And a recent study from the University of Chicago says the reliance on child labor in cocoa production has only increased in the intervening years. Despite the litany of evidence against big chocolate, the case didn't wrap up as neatly as Sean had hoped. The U.S. Supreme Court this past June, unfortunately, ultimately decided in favor of Nestle and other big chocolate makers that they can, with license, essentially continue to use enslaved children to harvest cocoa beans. That litigation is ongoing. When cases containing terms like enslaved child labor make national headlines, it can push some to turn against cocoa from West Africa entirely. According to Megan Giller, we should be careful not to let big chocolate scandals overshadow the farmers and chocolate makers who are doing it right. People in the global north really tend to focus on this idea of child slavery and child labor in Africa and in the cocoa supply chain. And um, it's something that really comes around, especially around Valentine's Day, um, these big kind of exposés, and then it kind of fades and, and people aren't as concerned about it. 
you know, I'm not denying that there are big issues, um, but I think it's worth questioning why we focus on this and how we kind of frame the conversation. Kwabena told me that reporters consistently ask him the slavery question as well. He urges people to hold both truths in mind, that child labor abuses do exist in the cocoa trade, but that the rates of slavery are actually much lower than media in the global north has reported. He wants to educate consumers about farmers who are using responsible practices. This brings to mind family farmers in the American South and elsewhere, who are concerned that the younger generation will leave agriculture entirely. Similarly, Kwabena doesn't want negative press to turn young people against traditional farming. Yes, I know there are some sensitive part of the child labor and abuse in some other areas. That needs to be corrected. But the education which has been in the way now is preventing the youth from even trying to learn about farming at all. With a more nuanced understanding of the trade, farmers can work to improve practices for future generations. These media narratives are particularly damaging in a rural cocoa-growing region like central Ghana, where there are few other industries. Passing down traditional farming through the generations helps families generate real wealth, and it helps to reverse the ongoing economic damage of colonization. For so much of West Africa's colonial history, that kind of wealth building wasn't possible. I asked Megan Giller how makers and consumers in craft chocolate reckon with this history. We're having a moment across the country and, and world, and also especially in the chocolate world, <laughs> thinking about colonization and how that really has affected the supply chain today and everything that we consume and, and so many millions of people's lives on, on both sides of it. And I think it's been really eye-opening for me to realize that a lot of the ways that we think we're breaking that, that pattern of colonization actually reinforce it and reinforce those models. In other words, if consumers choose to boycott companies like Nestle, they're also harming cocoa farmers in the global south. For the Askinoses, direct trade is one way to decolonize chocolate. From the beginning of their company, that meant paying a premium for cocoa beans and asking retailers to follow suit. Even calling on stores like Whole Foods to buy chocolate bars for $5 a piece, which in 2007 was unheard of. So needless to say, I, I was laughed at a lot. Today, many consumers are willing to pay a premium for high-quality chocolate. Sean credits this shift to a growing awareness of the values that underlie the bean-to-bar movement. People sort of started like, oh, I get it. I understand why these bars are more expensive. And the, I'm talking about specialty food owners and, you know, fill in the blank city in the United States. Now, however, there's, you know, gosh, over 200 chocolate makers in the United States. And um, I mean, you can pretty much put a chocolate factory in your garage at this point. When we come back, we'll meet another craft chocolate maker who's making chocolate, not in his garage, but out of a 19th century grocery in Nashville, Tennessee. Meanwhile, we're going to open another chocolate bar. Or all of them. <laughs> but first. For eight generations, the Samuels family has distilled American whiskey. Today, Rob Samuels, the grandson of founder Bill Samuels Sr., oversees the operation of the Maker's Mark Distillery. From the soft red winter wheat they've sourced from the same local farm for over 60 years to the char in their barrels, Every step in the bourbon-making process is carefully crafted, just like Bill Samuel Sr. did when he first created the handmade bourbon. 
For their excellent spirits and their support of this podcast, SFA thanks Maker's Mark. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. One of the first things I learned about chocolate maker Scott Witherow is that he's obsessed with old junk. Those are his words, not mine. This is where we start. We bought stone mills from around 1900 to 1910. He sells his duck fat caramels in antique ammunition boxes. His chocolate factory, Olive in Sinclair, is headquartered in an old cookie company in East Nashville. And before that, it was a grocery store that opened in 1890. The Sinclair in Olive in Sinclair is a nod to his family's gas station business in Franklin, Tennessee. Scott's slow-roasted chocolate is fittingly old-fashioned. And roll. Scott founded Olive in Sinclair in 2007, the same year Sean started Askinosi. And he also practices direct trade. Wanting to cut out the middleman, Scott identified a strong farming partner in the Dominican Republic, another decolonized nation in the global south. The Dominican Republic is the leading exporter of organic cocoa in the world, and many Dominican farmers grow cocoa on a small scale. Along with Olive and Sinclair in Nashville, you can find Bean to Bar chocolate in Atlanta, New Orleans, Raleigh, the list goes on. As more chocolate makers turn to ethical sourcing, public awareness around forced labor is growing. Quabina says this awareness is important, as long as it doesn't lead to generalizations among consumers about an entire continent, or among rural communities and cocoa-growing regions, which might deter farmers from teaching their kids, or kids from wanting to carry on the tradition. That is the information that is in the waves now, that children should not go to the farm at all. But we learned by imitation and observation. As I tell you, I'm a professional farmer, and my children will be, but my father passed it on to me by me observing him and knowing how he does it and does it well. He educated me all right. No farmer involved his or her son into any hazardous activity that will harm him or her. It's this same mentality that's motivated Sean and Lauren Askinosi to start making chocolate in the region where Sean's grandparents farmed. Direct trade is one way to decolonize the cocoa trade. And Lauren says that staying intentional about how they choose their farmer partners is another. Working directly with female farmers, which virtually no one else does, um, and championing the work of women in cocoa, who are really the unsung heroes of this industry, that's something that's a big part of what direct trade means to me. Starting 12 years ago, Askinosi Chocolate has been partnering with a women-led farmer group in southern Tanzania. Many female farmers are widows who have carried on with cocoa harvesting. In addition to supporting these farmers, Lauren also emphasized the importance of speaking out against labor abuses as part of transparent trade. And we hope that that the more we can expose what is sometimes called the dark side of chocolate to people, we can also counterbalance that with this um, light of, you know, there are companies like us that are trying to truly partner with farmers, to truly pay them what their beans are worth, to champion their work, to show their faces. And hopefully what you get is a bar of chocolate that you feel really good about, but that also tastes so much better than maybe you ever thought chocolate could. Which begs the question, does ethically sourced chocolate tend to taste better? And if so, why? 
Well, one of the benefits of direct trade is that chocolate makers communicate with growers about all the factors that affect flavor, like fermentation, drying, and storage. Based on the close ties that makers cultivate with farmers over the years, and the fair price they pay for cocoa beans, farmers are highly motivated to satisfy quality specifications. Talking about direct trade brings us to a moral question. While forced child labor is a glaring example of unethical consumption, how do you define ethical consumption? Is there such a thing? And when you're standing in the grocery aisle, gazing at a wall of options, how do you know which chocolate bar to choose? I pose these questions to Megan Giller. Ethical consumption is kind of a mysterious term, and we're always kind of working towards that, but maybe never quite reaching it because it's it's so complicated. And like, you know, if I'm in a store looking at a wall of chocolate, I will first look for things that say direct trade and transparent trade and that have information about the farmers on them um, that seems like real, <laughs> like someone's name or, you know, we visited them in 2017 or whatever it happens to say, kind of clues like that. So maybe we can't be perfect consumers, as Megan says, but we can work to do better. Part of that is going one step further, by buying chocolate, not only grown, but also made in the countries of origin. Because um, we kind of have had for hundreds of years this idea that this rough product is what's produced in in the global south, and then it's brought to the global north um, to be turned into like a luxury product. And this is not just in chocolate, it's in other things too, but chocolate is a really great example. And so when you keep that at home, people are, you know, in that local economy are able to benefit a lot more. In Ghana, for example, there's now an emerging chocolate industry to accompany the cocoa trade. When Kwabena founded Mfed Farms in 2012, there was only one commercial chocolate maker in his country. Today, there are more than a dozen. As he sees it, a bitter past is giving way to a sweeter future for cocoa farmers and chocolate makers in the global south. Gravy was reported and produced by Sarah Holtz, an independent radio producer, documentary artist, and on-air host based in Oakland and New Orleans. Special thanks to Fabio Parasicoli and Christy Leslie. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Managing editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp-Milam. Additional editing is by Olivia Terenzio, and Katie King keeps us straight on our facts. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to watch films, read your way through our event bibliographies, or listen to this podcast. While you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm Mary Beth Lasseter. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.